You know, when um, we come before the Lord, we have the opportunity to ask the King of the universe for whatever he might give us. The Bible tells us, Luke tells us, that when Jesus was praying, his disciples came to him and asked, teach us to pray. They knew that first and foremost, Jesus was a man of prayer. And they said, Lord, John, the baptizer, taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. That's one of the most important petitions you can make. And I want to invite you to join me in that petition now as we come before Jesus, seek the throne of the Father in heaven and ask for Jesus and the way Jesus prays. Let's pray together. Lord, teach us to pray. In your name, we ask it to our Heavenly Father. Amen. So today's sermon is entitled, No Puny Prayers. Ask the King to Rule. No puny prayers. Ask the King to Rule. And if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, just remember this, ask the king to rule. If you say prayer kind of overwhelms me, it's very complicated, or it seems to me to be very complicated, I don't know what to pray on. Ask the king to rule. Can you repeat that with me? Ask the king to rule. God in heaven, rule. God in heaven, rule in my life. In my marriage, where I work, in the life of this person who's struggling, maybe with illness, God, you rule, whatever you want. In my friends or family members or acquaintances who don't know you, God, I pray that you would rule. In a world that seems to be surely going to hell, right now, as I speak, not only in Kabul, but also... In California, or by the way, maybe even right here in the middle of the Central Hills of Mississippi, right? Oh God, would you please rule? Rule me and rule here and Jesus come. No puny prayers. Ask the king to rule. Now I have to tell you, I have to go ahead and confess uh, the puny prayer thing. Not only is it an alliteration, but I also think about sometimes, unfortunately, some of my great sisters and brothers in the faith will say, well, let's just say a quick little prayer, children, or let's just say a quick little prayer because we're real busy and we need to get on and do things. The Bible says no. Now, on the one hand, Jesus teaches us not to babble on. We don't need to say a whole lot, but is it a quick little puny prayer to come before God? No way. 
So let's remember that, number one. And then number two, as I've said, ask the king to rule. Let me give you a basic diagnostic test, a basic spiritual diagnostic test. I think you've even got it quoted there in the sermon notes for you. If you follow along with the sermon notes here in the worship service or the ones that are posted or will be posted online. Corey Ten Boom, one of my heroes in the faith, you know, saved hundreds of Jewish people in, uh, in the Netherlands during World War II, and then herself survived uh, over a year in the concentration camps when the Nazis arrested her. Her sister died, she survived and was a great evangelist. Here's her diagnostic pr prayer question. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Even a child can get that question. Is prayer your steering wheel or just your spare tire? Where are you before the Lord? How is your prayer life before the Lord? Because let me tell you this, there is a direct, I'm not saying indirect and vague, there is a direct relationship between how much and how you pray and whether you actually have faith saving faith and a relationship with God. There is a direct relationship between how much a married couple prays together and how much God rules and brings forth fruit in their marriage. I don't know how to be more blunt than that. I'm telling you that. If you're married and you're not praying together, God is not ruling your marriage and you're telling him he doesn't rule your marriage. There's a direct relationship between how much a family prays together and whether that family really has saving and sustaining faith. There's a direct relationship between how much a church and church leaders pray and whether they actually believe God. Because obviously, and the Bible repeats this over and over again, right? But it's pretty obvious. You don't have to be a great you know, multiple degree scholar to understand this. If you actually believe God is God, you're going to talk to him and seek his guidance a lot. If you say, yeah, yeah, that's something we kind of talk about, but I'm really in charge and we're really in charge. You're not going to talk to him very much. And you're not going to grow in faith. And there is a circle, there is a cycle to this. People who truly pray, truly pray. I'm not talking about puny prayers. I'm not talking about panic prayers, but people who really pray and seek God, they grow in faith. And people who are growing in faith seek God in prayer more and more and more and more. You want to begin to seek God to turn your family, your marriage, the world around? No puny prayers. Ask the king to rule. And I have good news for us today. Jesus teaches us how to pray. As Dean just shared in our joint Sunday school time together, our younger, our younger children now in Sunday school for upcoming 12 weeks are going to be learning about the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer today for a few minutes as a framework to approach and to at least take an executive summary overview of Isaiah chapter 37 and Isaiah's prayers and Hezekiah's prayers and God's responses 
in the midst of a crisis. But again, our framework here, and I've laid it out for you in the notes, we'll follow along here. I have good news. Jesus teaches us how to pray. He answered his disciples. He not only infused this teaching into sermons like the Sermon on the Mount, he, he taught them privately as well, this basic way to pray. We, we talk about the Lord's prayer it's the Lord's way of teaching us, not just some words, but how to pray, how to pray. And uh, the basic thing is ask the king to rule, as I've already said, but let's go through three points here. Number one, look up to our father, our heavenly father, on his throne. You have to get that. That's why I have it in the notes. You're looking up to God, our father, on the throne. He is the king, and you're asking him to rule. Our father, who's hanging out with me at the ice cream shop? Our father who art in heaven on the throne. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And further good news here, you know, isn't this just amazing that you, Christian, are invited to come to the throne room of God? And you can come with boldness and confidence. Again, no puny prayers, not like, well, just asking for a little bit here. You are in the presence of Almighty God. How great is that? Hebrews 4 tells us that because Jesus is the true and great high priest, he has made the way for us to hold fast to our confession of faith, even in times of crisis like uh, the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews were going through, thinking about falling back into standard Judaism because they were under so much pressure. Hebrews 4 says that we can hold fast to the confession because Jesus is the great high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows we're weak but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. Do, do not let the devil divert you and tell you you're not worthy to come to the throne because Jesus, the worth is in Jesus and he has made the way for you, okay? So then verse 16 of Hebrews four, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. When you come to God, you are approaching him on the throne and he is on the throne of mercy, the throne of grace. This is a reflection back on the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of God, the throne of God was called the mercy seat. Okay? So in the New Testament, we realize what that means, what that's pointing to through the cross of Jesus and the way he makes for us to come all the way into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, he has shed his blood. Do not disregard that, rejoice in that and come all the way to the throne. And as Paul says, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians three, um, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church and the manifold wisdom of God, it might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You're praying for all that and you're rejoicing in all that. Isn't that amazing? Even the heavenly rulers 
are going to be subject totally to the glory of God that's realized in Christ. I mean, it's still unfolding. And then this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have, there it is again, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him all the way to the throne. So that's number one. Go to the throne, the throne of your heavenly Father, and seek him in confidence through Jesus Christ. Number two, begin and end your prayer focused on God's kingdom, God's will, and God's glory. I don't care if you've just been in a car wreck and and you're bleeding on the side of the road and your spouse is in trouble. Seek God's kingdom and God's will in the midst of it. Begin and end with the name and the glory and the rule of God. How does the Lord's prayer to Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. For thine is what? The kingdom and the power and the glory. Begin and end focused on God and God's glory. Your prayer is not mainly about yourself. God is gracious to include you in the response. To, the prayer is mainly about God. Even Jesus in the high priestly prayer that's recorded in John chapter 17, he prays about our being one with God, okay? Just as the apostles are already one with Christ and therefore one with God. And he, he prays about our unity for those who will believe because of the testimony of the apostles. That's you and, you and me, right? And all this unity, what's the purpose? In John 17, 23, Jesus prays, I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that the world may know. There's a bigger story about God's mission and God's witness and God's kingdom in everything that happens in your life, Christian. And prayer teaches us to understand and lay before God in the bigger picture. So that's number two, begin and end your prayers always focused on God's rule, God's glory, God's name, and God's bigger mission. And number three, bring your request in and under his name, asking for his rule. Not, okay, God, I know you're on the throne and everything, and let me say a few words that kind of pump you up a little bit, God, but now let me tell you what I need and how it's going to be. It's, this is not hocus-pocus stuff, folks. You do not achieve real prayer by throwing out a few words. This is an entire posture that comes to the Lord in his name, in the name of and inconsistent with Jesus, inconsistency with who Jesus is. So, one, two, three. Now, with that understood, we're going to be turning to, for a third Sunday, our third and final Sunday of focusing on the central chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 36 through 39. And as we've been learning, these central, these central chapters in the book of Isaiah are highlighting God's call for us to do two things. Trust him and pray to him. We can all get that one, right? You can all get that online. Trust God no matter what even in the worst of situations, continue to trust him and pray to him. Trust and pray. Now, 
we're back today to where we left off last week with this crisis that is described in Isaiah chapter 36 and runs on into chapter 37 of Isaiah. King Sennacherib, the king of kings of the earth, that's what he called himself. He's the most powerful king on earth. He's the emperor of the brutal Assyrian empire. Um, he has come to quell all the revolts of all the various little kingdoms and coalitions that stood up to him when he took power after Sargon II died. And for about eight or 10 years, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, has successfully led a coalition that is in rebellion against the Assyrians. But then when Sennacherib consolidated his power and started coming to the west, okay, to the Levant, including on his way to Judah, and further, hoping to get down to Egypt and Cush, like Ethiopia, okay, uh, then um, he's going to punish Hezekiah, and he's going to punish Jerusalem and Judah. This is bad stuff. And as Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, began to conquer and destroy the fortified cities of Judah on his way down the coast and heading inland now, Hezekiah, we read in 2 Kings, sends a tribute, payoff money to Sennacherib saying, it says this in the Bible, he says, I was wrong, <laughs> I've sinned against you, I'm really sorry, here's all the wealth I can muster. He strips his royal palaces, he strips the temple, Hezekiah does. This is a man who's been faithful up until now and sends this tribute to Sennacherib. Well, guess what happens when you try to pay off the Taliban or Iran? Do the heads stop being cut off? What do you think? And how foolish can people be? So anyway, he sends this payoff to Sennacherib, and Sennacherib says, I'm coming for you, boy. I'm going to take you out. I'll either cut your head off, or I'll put a hook in your mouth and lead you as my slave back to Nineveh. So we read in the scripture, and we know this historically, all the 46 fortified cities of Judah have fallen. The, the second to the last one, the penultimate, is Lachish Falls. Again, you can go see the relief over in the Cobb Institute, the replica of the relief showing the Assyrians taking out Lachish with the siege ramp and the, the spears and the, the falling heads and everything else, okay? So that now he's coming to Jerusalem. We got a crisis. This is the last city, the capital. This is where Hezekiah is. And uh, the so-called great king, this is what he calls himself, Sennacherib, his armies are beginning to surround Jerusalem. So what should Hezekiah do based on what we've learned from the scripture? Should Hezekiah say to his cohorts, well, you've advised me to try to a compromise with and pay off uh, Sennacherib, so we're just going to cave to Sennacherib now. Let's just surrender. Is that what he should do? Alternatively, should he say, let's say a quick little prayer because we're all really busy. So I know we only have about two or three minutes for a little prayer, a little puny prayer to God. When your head's about to be cut off, does that seem like that would suffice? Probably not, right? Well, what about, is it just a panic prayer? A panic prayer, just all about you and real quick, and it's not very focused on God at all. Would that be appropriate? No. So Isaiah 37, we're going to learn, first of all, as we saw last week, 
that in the first verses, we won't read through those again, the first thing Hezekiah does is he asks for the man of God, Isaiah, whose advice and prophecies he's been disregarding in this whole thing with Sennacherib up until this point. Now, Hezekiah asks for Isaiah's prayers. He says, please pray to your God. You're the one with the real connection. Pray to your God. Maybe he will hear all this blasphemy that Sennacherib is doing against God and God's people and respond. So the first thing we need to remember is Jesus teaches us, I didn't highlight this in the introduction, but let's remember this. Jesus teaches us to pray first person plural. When you pray, you need to turn to other prayer warriors, to men of God, to women of faith, and ask for their prayers too, okay? Prayer is a group effort of the people of faith, of families of faith. Ask men and women of God to pray for you. Ask for your pastor to pray for you. Ask for other people that you know are in the Lord to pray for you. Hezekiah does that. Again, as I've said, Hezekiah has been flawed in this, but he is a man of faith. He knows what to ask for. And he asked for Isaiah to pray for God's glory and God's rule to come. Okay? Now, God responds to Isaiah's prayers in multiple ways, in multiple times, and also to Hezekiah's prayers. So I want you to get this too. God responds sometimes immediately, sometimes over a long period. The outflow of asking for God's kingdom is not all answered in one moment, but God may well answer what you need in the moment as well as having a longer term plan, okay? So get that about prayer. And then third, God's covenant commitment and awesome rule infinitely exceed what we can understand or our expectations. When I ask for God to rule, do I understand everything God has planned? What do you think? No way. He's able to do, as Paul says, exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or even imagine. Okay? So now, uh, let's go through some of this scripture. So picking up at the story, let me just tell you in the transition here, in Isaiah 37, from where we left off last week uh, to where we're picking up now, I'll summarize the fact that when Sennacherib gets the fact that the Rabshakeh has come and threatened Jerusalem and Hezekiah has not caved yet, and God sends a rumor that has Sennacherib distracted, worried about Egypt coming up and everything else, um, Sennacherib sends a message back to Hezekiah and says, now he's ramped up the conflict with God. Sennacherib says, do not let your God deceive you. Well, if Sennacherib had been speaking blasphemy before, now it's directly on the line. It's in a scroll and it's come to Hezekiah. Don't let your God deceive you. I'm the king of kings. I rule the earth. Your God can't do anything for you. That's a bunch of words. So Hezekiah has received this letter, and let's learn from what Hezekiah does. Picking up at Isaiah 37, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter, this letter saying, don't trust your God, I'm in charge here on earth, I've beaten everybody else. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. This is another thing we need to all remember and learn about prayer. 
Prayer is not beginning and end about the words. It's about your spiritual posture before the Lord. I'm not talking about ritual actions, really. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your spiritual posture before the Lord. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your cares before the Lord, and he will address them. Here, literally, Hezekiah does not tweet in response to this. He doesn't post this on Instagram. Social media is not going to save him. He lays it literally before the Lord. In where? In the house of the Lord. That's really how the prayer begins. Then verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now, we get an address that is very much like the opening of the way the Lord teaches us to pray. O Lord of hosts, remember that term means God is in charge of the heavenly armies. Sennacherib may rule on earth a bunch of armies, but you're in charge of the heavenly armies. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned, do y'all see that? Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. In other words, there's only one God. Hey, we, we, get the, we get the definite article there in the Hebrew. It's pretty interesting. You are the God. You are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? Now, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. This is not disrespectful. He's simply laying this before the Lord. This is a way of praying now. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Not all these dead gods, not all these fake gods, the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king, kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. And now here we're back to the petition. Verse 20. So now, O Lord, our God. Now, just Isaiah's God, our God. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. Why? Because we've got plans and a vacation home on the beach? No, look at this. Save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. You rule, O God. Um, verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Oh man, you need to hear that from God. Because you have prayed to me, I'm going to share some of my plans with you. Here's what's happening. Are you listening? Have you prayed to him? Because you have prayed to me, let me share with you what's actually going to happen now. And then there's a whole series of sequences of what's going to happen. Verse 22, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And, and then there's this whole series where God is giving this message that Sennacherib is going down. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. You thought you were going to rape and pillage her. Jerusalem is going to stand. You don't get her. 
Not yet. Maybe the Babylonians do. I've already prophesied that, Isaiah and God say. But, but Assyria's not getting her. And in fact, it's going to be really bad for Sennacherib. So he goes through this whole message about how everything that you've done, Sennacherib, all the power that you've exercised was under my sovereign plan for judgment and punishment. But now it's ending. It's over. Um, verse 28, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose, just like you do to all those kings to humiliate for psychological warfare. I'm going to do it to you. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And then there's going to be a message um, to Hezekiah. This will be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs forth from that. In other words, you're not going to be able to refarm, but you can go out and get food because the Assyrians are going to leave very soon. And then there's this miracle. There's this miracle. Um, verse 31, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Because why? What's going to happen? You're going to plant vineyards, and within a year, in a few months, the vineyards are going to bear fruit. That's going to be a miracle sign to you to know that I can restore Zion. Okay? It's just amazing prophecy here. It just doesn't happen like that, but it does, and it's a sign of what God is going to bring forth through the mustard seed kingdom, ultimately through Jesus. Okay? So, uh, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, just like God says, for unto us a child is born, and he's going to reign, and his kingdom will know no end. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes this, Isaiah 9, same language there. Then, moving on, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Do you see that? It's for God's sake and for David's sake. And what is David's sake talking about? God's covenant with David and the ultimate coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus. What happened? Verse 36. It's very amazing and anticlimactic at the same time, just like Revelation 19 is, when, when the beast and all the armies of the rulers of the world arraign and align against Jesus. You're waiting for multiple chapters of battle description. It happens in a couple verses. It's gone. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. What happened? There's various historical disputes, but this cannot be disputed even by atheistic historians, that something happened that wiped out the army of Assyria in the West, that Sennacherib never went to the Levant again, that he went back to Nineveh, and directed his attention towards the east. He never went down to Egypt. He never took Jerusalem. And although he clearly was coming to punish Hezekiah, his own annals say, yeah, I took all the 46 fortified cities and Hezekiah, I left like a caged bird in Jerusalem. Well, you were coming to punish him. Everybody knows your method, your MO, Sennacherib. What happened? This is what happened. 
the Bible tells us. We don't know if it's a bubonic plague, if it's just a direct spiritual strike by the Lord. We know that the army got wiped out and Sennacherib never again returned to the Levant militarily. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. 701, 700, let's move forward to 681. Sometimes God's plan continues to unfold over many decades and years, 20 years later. And he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his God. Notice Hezekiah's in the Lord's house. You get the contrast here, right? Sennacherib's in his God's house, Nishroch. What happened there in 681 BC? Historically, totally verified. Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Some sources say he was also trampled. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ezarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remember, pray for the king, there's only one, to rule. And know this. He will justify and glorify his son. He will do it for the sake of his name and the name of his son, Jesus. And you're under his name. So even as flawed as you and I are, God will uphold his son. God will uphold his covenant with David. God will uphold his kingdom forever and ever. Pray knowing that, pray for that in the midst of whatever is before you and bring it to the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Let's